This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. What he was pointing to was that we can see with great honesty our circumstance, with great compassion, and in the middle of it, laugh. In the middle of it, say, yes, this too is a part of our humanity. It's not that we have to change or fix or be someone else, but that there is a wisdom that's so much greater than the things that we get caught up in. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. After returning from... um teaching in Europe uh, this last week, um, I joined the retreat for the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, a group of about 20 or so of us and a few teachers from the East Coast, um, had a five-day retreat with my very oldest Dharma friend and and wonderful teacher named Ajahn Sumedho, who's an American um, Buddhist monk, now living for the last 20-some years in England and abbot of a variety of monasteries. He's in his 70s now. And uh, it was, a, it was an inspiring and terrific retreat um, because he's um, a very gracious and happy and wise human being. And th- there was a way of feeling that very much in his presence. And it made me then reflect, coming back here tonight on Monday, um, about the teachings that we received, he and I, in Thailand from our teacher, Ajahn Chah. Um, And so I thought tonight that I would speak a little bit about Ajahn Sumedho and even more about um, the teacher we studied with in Thailand. And part of it is kind of um, unusual because as I really reflect, and he and I were talking about what it was like 35, 40 years ago, almost, uh, that when I first met him in Thailand, it seems like ages ago in a different culture and in a different time. And yet you know how it is when you meet somebody in your life who teaches you something really important or demonstrates something that awakens you in some very important way, especially if it's a relationship over a period of time. Then after many years, um, it feels to me anyway 
that I'm still learning from that relationship. That, um, you know, as a young monk in the monasteries of Thailand, um, part of the time I was just trying to figure out how to walk around and not have my robe fall off, you know, <laughs> or how to manage getting up at 3.30 in the morning and sit all night, you know, all, all morning on this stone floor without any cushions and things like that. And I was getting this great ancient Buddhist wisdom that's been carried in the forests and the temples for 2,500 years in Asia. So some of it kind of passed me by a little bit. And now, as I've been continuing to practice and, and teach over these years, I reflect back and I hear pieces of what were said and I remember things that I was um, taught. And it's like this treasure chest. So Ajahn Sumedho, who is this very interesting um, um, person, um, I heard about, um, I'd gone to um, Thailand in the Peace Corps in 1967 after studying Buddhism in the university. Um, I got very interested in Buddhist teachings, and I asked the Peace Corps to send me to a Buddhist country because uh, I wanted to spend time in a monastery. Um, and I thought it would either be Nepal or Thailand, and they sent me to Thailand. So I was up in the Mekong River Valley in these provinces um, on the border of Laos, working on um, rural health and medical teams in the Mekong River Valley. And after a few months, somebody came kind of running into my office and said, Prat Farang, there's a Western monk, which was kind of unheard of, living on a mountaintop in this province. We, we ran into him, and don't you want to go see him? And I got very excited. I thought, well, this is maybe a kind of compadre. Um, and so I w got a ride up to this base of this little mountain and then walked up. There was a ruins of a Cambodian temple on top. And here was this um, American big guy, you know, bald-headed, wearing his robes. Um, and he and one other monk, uh, were in these two little huts, the little wooden huts at the side of this big old ruined temple. And I walked up to him and I kind of paid my respects. I said, hi, I'm, my name's Jack. And he said, oh, I'm Samedo. And I looked and as he sat there, I saw that he had a lot of bees all over his body, um, bees that were on his arms. I think they liked the salt or something like that. It was warm and they were kind of... And so I introduced myself. I said, I'm really interested in Buddhist practice and happy to meet you. And um, what's with the bees? <laughs> you know? And he said, well, I came up here to meditate, you know, and there are these two little huts. I got one, and then I discovered that there was a bee's nest in the top of the hut here. And at first I didn't like it. I thought they'd sting me, and I was trying to get them out. And then I kind of reflected on it. I realized, you know, I'm a Buddhist monk. And we're supposed to be at peace with everything in the world. And who am I to say that the bees should get out? I mean, they're using the upper half of the hut. I use the bottom half. I figured we could kind of live together. And I realized that I'd met a pretty unusual person. Okay? And that's really how he's been over these years. And as he said, he's sort of, you know, he has a temper and he can be resentful of things, or he used to be anyway, and kind of judgmental and so forth. But he's really learned through his training and practice with our teacher, Ajahn Chah, and then himself as an abbot. He said, I really keep studying the Dharma in myself. When is it that I get myself in trouble in the world? Um, and how can I find a way to be free, even though the world doesn't do what I think it should? You know what I mean, don't you? Right? 
So as an abbot, he said, I've had, there were conflicts between monks or people who didn't like me. And, you know, I'm this big guy and I'm the abbot and I'm the father figure. And if you have father stuff and you come in the monastery, I'm it, right? And I've had people who like me and hate me and chew me out and, you know, struggle and so forth. And after a while, I had to realize, oh, it's really not so much about me, actually. It's just stuff. And so he would kind of bow to it and say, oh, this is interesting. He has praise and blame and love and hatred and just kind of keep his seat as the abbot. But one of the things he said that was really difficult is after 15 years of, or 10 years of running monastery somewhat successfully in England, beautiful community, a group of women decided to join and become Buddhist nuns. And he said, listen, I had enough trouble being an abbot for a man. At least I know something about that. I don't know anything about women. And I was the abbot, and they were wanting me to teach them. He said, I did not do a very good job, <laughs> frankly. I didn't understand them. Sometimes I didn't even like them, which was very honest, you know. You know how it is with us human beings, don't you? Huh? Um, and so there were all kinds of conflict and difficulty. And then he thought, now what can I do? How can I work with this? And he said, so one day I realized what I had to do. And I went over to the quarters where the women, the nuns, were living, where we'd had different disagreements and conflicts, and I didn't really know it. And I said, I'm going to come here every day for the next three months in the morning after our meal, and I'm just going to sit here for an hour, an hour and a half, and listen to you. And you can say anything you like, and I'm just going to come every day and listen. And maybe I will learn something. <laughs> and he went for day after day after day, and apparently they had quite a bit to say to him. <laughs> and it all got somewhat better after that. Um, so he's, he's really um, a person who not only has dedicated himself in some way to Buddhist practice, but to Buddhist practice as um, the practice of living with a compassionate and open heart in a wise way. Very, very simple. And I know when our teacher, Ajahn Chah, first came to the West. He went with Ajahn Sumedho to England, um, and then he came to America. We invited him to America in the late 1970s, and he came to our center in Massachusetts as well. But when he first came to England, they were invited by the English Sangha Trust, this English community of, of British Buddhists. And um, they asked um, them to come for a time in London. And the place they had was some little apartment right in the middle of London, even though these were forest monks. And so Ajahn Sumedho and his teacher, my teacher Ajahn Chah, they went. A couple of other monks might have gone with him. And Ajahn Chah said, well, you should go out with your begging bowl every morning. And Sumedho said, I should. You know, in Thailand, you go with a begging bowl, and people are waiting, and they offer this wonderful food to you. He said, no one will know what I'm doing. He said, well, how will they ever find out if you don't go out every morning? So you go out and take your bowl and walk down the street, you know, walk over to Hyde Park or wherever it is. And, and Sumedho said, you know, all right, I'll try it, but I don't think anything's going to happen. And he said, you know, once in a while people would come up and say, what are you? And he'd say, oh, I'm a Buddhist monk or something like that. Um, but it was getting a little bit frustrating. And he went to Ajahn Chah, he said, I'm not sure this is going to work. And Ajahn Chah said, you know, there are several reasons for you to go out. One, of course, is that people won't learn how to take care of a mendicant unless they see you. So even if it's one at a time, you can explain this to, to them. 
Um, the second is it's really good practice for you. Just it's part of your meditation to go and take your bowl and receive whatever you get. As, as Sumedha said, one morning some people had put some stuff in it, and then some kids came by and looked in, there was candy, and they took some out of it. Said, okay, it's England. Um, but the most important reason, or one of the most important reasons, is that if you look in the story of the Buddha, um, when the Buddha left the palace, the beautiful life he had of great pleasure in the palace, as this myth or story is told, he encountered four sites, which are called the four heavenly messengers, that awakened the desire for liberation in him. First, he saw a really old person, older than he'd ever seen, and he said to his charioteer, to whom does that happen? And the charioteer said, shook his head, and he says, everyone, if they're fortunate, right? Uh, okay, took a breath. And then he saw a, a really sick person, at least as the story is told, someone who was wretchedly sick and cared for, but to whom does this happen? And the charioteer said, um, everyone, sir, to this young prince. And then finally he saw his first dead body. I don't know if you can remember the time you first saw um, a, a corpse, a human body that had died, but there's something tremendously compelling about that, especially when there comes this sense of, oh, hmm, this is actually going to happen. And it's not just happening to them, but we're also on our way to that. And the Buddha, uh, the young prince, Buddha-to-be, said, to whom does this happen? And the charioteer said, yes, to every one of us. And then as they were traveling through the kingdom out of the palace, there was one fourth sight. And that was as they went along they saw at the edge of the forest a man walking along wearing uh, the robes of a mendicant, of a monk with a bowl. And he said to the charioteer, and who is that? And the charioteer said, this is a, a yogi who has left the world of commerce and uh, business and family and so forth to go and seek uh, a liberation or a freedom beyond birth and death, beyond um, all of the joys and sorrows of this world. So this is a yogi who's gone to seek enlightenment. And the Buddha, in the story, looked at that and took tremendous inspiration. And that was the cause of his own going forth to find enlightenment. So that's how the story is told. So Ajahn Chah looked at him and he said, the most important reason, perhaps, for you to go out there is because there might be someone in London who is the next Buddha, and all that they're waiting for is to see you walk by and be reminded of what's possible. So he did, and he went wandering around every morning London, and then one morning um, he was wandering through a park near there walking this bowl, and a man came jogging by and stopped and said, what are you? And Ajahn Sumedha said, well, I'm a Buddhist monk. Actually, I'm a forest monk, in fact. Um, we live in the forest of Thailand. But... Um, we were invited here in England, and we were given an apartment to live in in London, so I'm a forest monk in an apartment, and I'm <laughs> out on alms round. And the man looked at him. They had a little bit more conversation. He said, well, it happens that I have a really beautiful forest down in Sussex, um, and I've been wondering what to do with it, and it seems like it would be quite suitable for some forest monks. And so he wrote on a little piece of paper and placed in the bowl 
I don't know, 80 or 100 acres of exquisite woods in Sussex, which is like Marin County, very elegant part of England, and said, here, may I offer you a forest? So it did pay off, actually, to go out with this <laughs> So you meet Ajahn Sumedho, and there is this spirit of graciousness and um, open-heartedness and a kind of willingness to experiment with life as a path of liberation itself. Not just meditation. There's a way in which, especially for Ajahn Chah and that lineage, um, there's a way in which Westerners can get the idea that meditation is what Buddhism is. And if you meditate and you have certain experiences, then everything will be happily, be happy ever after. You know how that goes. It doesn't turn out that way. You meditate, and even if you have very cool experiences, which you can, that's really wonderful, then you go home. Right? <laughs> and things change. <laughs> and you have to find a way to embody it in a conversation with your partner or your lover or your children or your parents or, you know, your business community and so forth. Um, and so for Ajahn Sumedho and for Ajahn Chah, our teacher, he said meditation was a way to quiet the mind and open the heart so you could see the ways that you grasp and cling and get frightened and create suffering for yourself and others. And so you could also see the possibility, the freedom of untangling that and living in a different way because you know this is possible as much as I do. And yes, you may forget it in certain moments, but something in you knows it so deeply, knows it the way the Buddha knew it when he saw that mendicant and said, ah, yes, this is possible for me too. And this is your Buddha nature. O nobly born, it says in the Buddhist text, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. So when we um, went, when I went to Ajahn Chah's forest monastery, which seems, as I say, you know, continents and, and, and decades away, um, there's a certain way in which it's really not very different than coming to Spirit Rock on retreat or coming to the temple. You come into the temple and there is a sense that it is not, um, it, is, it doesn't operate quite by quite the same rules as the rest of the world or the rest of our common life. I remember being at Ajahn Chah's monastery, which is a couple of hundred acres of this forest with big old teak trees and and vines and wild animals, snakes and cobras and um, various forest creatures and huts in the clearings and so forth. And I was visited at one point in my training there by good friends who uh, I knew when I was working in Peace Corps. They were working in Laos and Vietnam for the Quakers um, doing um, medical work and peace work. And they came to see me because we'd been good friends and they also needed a break because it was very intense during the wartime. But they also came to complain. They said, here you are sitting on your ass, right? <laughs> While we're out there, you know, doing the good work. And what is it with all these monks, you know, who are here when the war is happening? And it, was, it wasn't a, just a theoretical question because there was a big air base right nearby um, and, you know, so there were fighter planes um, taking off 
that you could see in here. And at night, you could see the B-52 um, go over. And even in the far horizon, you could see flashes of light from bombing in Cambodia and Laos and places that we were relatively close to. Um, and I didn't answer. I mean, we had a kind of dialogue about it. You know, I don't remember what I said. But by the end of their visit, which was a week or 10 days, they came to an understanding themselves. Um, because um, there had been a succession of wars. I mean, in Vietnam, there was, you know, the, they, they don't call it the Vietnam War as we do. They call it the American War. That was after the French War, you know, that was after some other war that they had. Um, there have been a series of wars in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and so forth, as there have been in many of the countries of the world. And what my friends saw of this temple was a living library of another possibility for the way human beings can conduct their lives. You come in and there's a kind of respect. Each person that comes is treated with tremendous dignity, um, a great generosity can, you know, do you... Do you need food to eat? Do you need a place to stay? If you go to where there's war, um, people get understandably um, terrified and crazed and they will tear down their own temples and cannibalize their community just for survival for their family or sell things that you couldn't imagine they would do. And here you could lose your watch or your wallet, you know, or whatever, and someone would find it and bring it and bring it to the Dharma Hall for the evening chanting and say, did anyone lose, you know, this pouch full of gold or whatever it was? Because it was a place of such integrity and such care. And so, as Ajahn Chah said, um, this world which is suffering from warfare and racism and the greed and hatred and ignorance said, what we would like to do is show that there is another way that human beings can live with one another. And even though there is indeed, an, in, in the monastery, also conflict, it is resolved in a completely different way than in the world outside. It is used to find freedom of heart. So there's this beautiful temple that one comes in, and the purpose of the temple isn't to be beautiful in itself, but to remind this heart, this spirit, that there is another way of being in the world. And there was a tremendous dignity, and I'll talk about the monastery there, um, when you came in, I mean, when I first came in, Ajahn Chah looked at me and he said, and I'd been visiting as a layperson, I came in as a monk, first thing he said to me is, I hope you're not afraid to suffer, and kind of smiling. <laughs> and I said, hmm, this is an interesting opening thing. He said, what, what do you mean? You know, I was thinking about being peaceful and meditating, you know, all that happy new age, whatever. Um, and he said, there's two kinds of suffering. The kind you run away from that follows you everywhere. And the kind that you're willing to turn and face to find real freedom. And that's the kind that we work with here. If you're open to that, then please come in. Um, so it wasn't that it was easy. Um, but there was a, a situation of a kind of dignity. There was a beautiful discipline. The, the paths were swept carefully. The brooms we would make every month, new brooms out of bamboo from the forest. The monks' robes and nuns' robes were, 
we learned to sew and stitch and everything was taken care of not just because it was a important thing to care for the little that you had but really as an expression of respect and you could feel it respect for the earth respect for the creatures of the earth and respect for all those who entered and in that that kind of simplicity and respect um, as you came in you were reminded of another way to live in the world of pleasure and pain and praise and blame and gain and loss because um, it wasn't easy I mean, and um, it was also a, a hard training I mean, our, our sitting uh, was without any cushions on these stone floors and we would sit up all night once a week that was one of our disciplines was just to sit up all night you know and I remember they would get dark I would go in and I would try to take a seat um, next to one of the two pillars that held up that part of the temple. So when it got really dark, because I, I ached so much, then I could kind of lean back against the pillar, and I didn't think anyone would see me, right? And after a couple weeks, in his Dharma talk one night, Ajahn Chah was sitting there and smiling. He said, to be awakened is to discover an inner strength and dignity and courage, to, to be independent, no matter what the circumstances, to not lean on things. <laughs> and we'd go out, as Ajahn Sumedho did, with our bowls. And it was really beautiful because people offered food not. It wasn't really like begging. It was the people would offer with such a spirit of generosity. You go on these little dikes between the rice paddies in the early morning um, and this was back in the 1960s before there was electricity in most of these villages. So there would be, you know, chickens and um, water buffalo next to the house and, and dirt streets. And people would come out uh, with the rice that they had just boiled for that morning or their curry. And they'd offer some in the bowl with such generous spirit as if to say, even very, very poor people, we will give of the little bit that we have of food to you because we so value what you represent in our world. We value the compassion and the, the freedom that, that the monasteries bring to our society that remind us of what's possible. Let us feed you. And you can't say, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, God, I love that curry. That was really good. You know, <laughs> Mango in there, mango, my favorite fruit. And you sort of have to just you know, walk and at least pretend that you're not noticing what goes in your bowl and so forth. And inside, you know, I would go back um, and then we would share our food. And I would think, here I am taking food from people in, in the poorest villages that have so little. And, all, you know, I could write back home to my, my parents and say, you know, I really need a thousand dollars for, you know, and they would send it. You know, that would be like the income for five years for one of these families. But somehow I felt like I needed to take this and use it to practice in the most um, genuine way I could. It was as if their gift made my own inner meditation and my own practice more genuine in some way because otherwise it, would, it wouldn't have been right to even receive their food. It was such a beautiful relationship. And as I said, it, you know, at times it was difficult. Um, but with it, um, Ajahn Chah, our teacher, had this tremendous good humor. 
about everything. I mean, even when things were really difficult. In the cold season, it got really, really cold. And I remember putting my <coughs> towel underneath my robe so I could kind of go out in the early morning. And he went walking with us. We did this long walk uh, when we were staying in a mountain monastery. And I was just shivering the whole time. And he smiled and he said, cold? And I said, I'm freezing. And he said, yeah, me too. He said, this is about as cold as it gets, you know, and, and there was just this sense of, all right, you can do this. I mean, it's cold, so it's cold. That's what it is. It's hot, it's cold, it's just the way things are. And there was, as if there was some way of saying, um, you can do this just as I have done it. You too can be free, no matter what it happens to be that arises. Um, you can bow to this too. Now it's cold. Now it's hot. Um, there was a spirit of bowing in the monastery to whatever came. Now there's the food is someone brought this wonderful, great banquet from from you know Bangkok for all the monks for uh, a couple of days, and then you know they disappear, and then we're back to eating chopped up um, uh, tree leaves in the dry season. You know, curry made with um, at cer- certain times when it was really poor with um, field mice that were chopped up and put in with a little bit of you know, fish powder and curry and stuff like that. And it's protein, you know. (laughs) I know it's not on the menu in Marin, but anyway. And that's, you would bow to that. This is the way, this is what's here now. And it's possible for us to live in beautiful circumstances and difficult circumstances. And in fact, most of us have both. I mean, you can live in the most beautiful place in the Bay Area and then the divorce, you know, or the person who has a stroke or disease or, or the loss or something. And it doesn't matter how elegant your home. That's really what touches your heart. And it's true for all of us. And how do we work with this? With compassion and presence and dignity? Ajahn Sumedho was brought to uh, this monastery of Ajahn Chah's, my friend Sumedho, by a monk who he met named um, Samai. And Samai wasn't a terribly good monk, but he, he loved Ajahn Chah and he brought Sumedho there. And then after he brought Sumedho there and lived there for a little while, he couldn't hack it as a monk. It was too difficult for him. And so he disrobed. That was okay. But he started drinking a lot. And he was hanging out in the monastery and he'd get drunk. And then he went in the town and it got worse. And he got involved in kind of petty crime and became a kind of um, very sad state, alcoholic, you know, derelict and so forth. Um, But our teacher, Ajahn Chah, said to Sumedho, you have to go and visit him because he is the person that brought you here. So you go visit him periodically. And when you visit him, call him Ajahn, call him master. Because nobody else sees his good heart. Nobody else sees the dignity that's under there that got him to bring you here and made him love this temple. Even if he's lost it, even if he's lost sight, you can see it in him. So I want you to go there and I want you to call him Ajahn Samai. And Sumedha said, I went and I visited him. And, you know, there he was in these difficult circumstances. And I would pay my respects to him as master, Samai. And he would smile and he would sit up. And it was as if it reminded him of this beauty that he'd forgotten in himself. And so that's part of the temple, to find this. Um, Now, one of the good things that was 
central to the way Ajahn Chah taught is, and Sumedho as well, is that he sim- his wisdom was, was very simple. He simply liked to acknowledge this is the way things are. He had a kind of phrase, it's like this. So if you were sick, okay, sickness is like this. If you were um, in depression or despair, ah, oh, this is what depression is like. It's like this. If you were joyful, oh, joy is like this. If there was a lot of frustration in your life, oh, frustration is like this. And it wasn't the notion that, oh, a good Buddhist shouldn't be frustrated or depressed or whatever. Um, But this is just human nature. It's like this. Um, And hearing this phrase, this is the way things are, spoken with a spaciousness and a kindness of heart. Depression, it's difficult. It's like this, isn't it? I mean, I remember I was sick with malaria, which you got in the jungles and the forest. It happened. And I was on the floor of my hut and pretty wretchedly sick, terrible headaches and body aching and, you know. Um, I've been given, fortunately, they had modern medicine at the monastery in their little, you know, cupboard. They had malaria medicine by that point before they'd try to do it mostly with some herbs and things sometimes which worked depended whether they had the right herbs or not but anyway I was I was pretty wretched and sick and Ajahn Chah came to see me and he looked at me and the conversation was really simple one he said "Mm, sick huh (laughs) you know and he sort of smiled and I said yeah he said real sick huh Kai Ma I said yep very sick He said, malaria, huh? I said, I think so. He said, "Um, feeling sorry for yourself? (laughs) I said, yep. He said, thinking of your mother, huh? I said, yes, exactly. I want to go home, you know. (laughs) And he just laughed. He said, yep, it's like this, isn't it? That's what sickness is like. He said, yep, we all had it, all of us who lived in the monastery and in the forest, the monks, he said. And malaria is difficult. It's just like this. It's really hard. You know, and there was such a sweetness in it. it well, there was no judgment. There wasn't trying to fix it. It's just okay. I've I've had it, and you you are going through it. And yes, you know, he probably thought about his mommy too. You know, at some point in it, going home, and it's just the way it was. And so he, you know, <coughs> stayed there with me for a little bit, and then he went back. And there was a sense that you could bow to your experience and say, "This is human life," and yet in this human life there was a spaciousness of wisdom to say, yes, this is the way things are, and this is not all of the way things are. There is something greater than this. So again from um, Ajahn Chah, let's see, where's the passage? Hmm. He says, if we don't understand the Dharma, if we don't know the nature of things, then the mind and all its experiences get mixed together. We experience the suffering and feel that our minds are suffering, that our bodies are suffering. Our minds are wandering, uncontrollable and unhappy conditions changing. But this isn't really the case. There are many forms of phenomena, but not many minds. If we don't understand this, we'll say, 
I'm upset, I'm unhappy, I'm depressed, I'm suffering, I'm scattered, but it's not true. The true nature of mind is that which knows. People think their minds aren't happy or unhappy, but actually the true nature of mind is silent and open and spacious and peaceful. And when we see this to be so, then we discover the difference between who we really are, our true nature, and all the visitors that come. The mind in its natural state, this true mind, is something that is stable and luminous and bright and clear. It becomes filled with experiences of joy and sorrow, plays and blame, all of the sense objects of life. And if we get entangled with them, we suffer. But if we learn to rest in the awakened mind, in the open heart, then all things come and go, and we are free in the midst of them. So it's kind of simple, simple teaching. And because he understood this kind of wisdom, then he could be really honest about himself. You know, he said, I had my own problems and suffering and difficulty. He wasn't kind of pretending that he was different. One of my favorite stories, we were invited to a temple on the border of Cambodia um, for a time, and I went in this uh, car with him in the back seat, and this young guy who was our driver, and it was a kind of one-and-a-half-lane dirt road that went up through the mountains to this temple, quite a long drive, um, twisty, and our driver was a maniac basically, this young guy who, you know, thought he was a race car driver, but it was like, a, you know, a 1962 Toyota rattle trap or whatever. <clears throat> and mostly the road was empty, but once in a while a huge logging truck or bus would come around the curb, and you just never knew when. And so we'd be racing around the corners, um, and you couldn't see what was coming at pretty high speed. And I, I'm getting, you know, thinking, all right, I'm going to die as a monk, right? This is just how it is. And getting, and then I look over and I see that Ajahn Chah's knuckles are white too. He's kind of <laughs> holding on there. And so we go through this whole long drive, you know, and it was really pretty intense. And finally we make it and we pull in the courtyard of the monastery. And Ajahn Chah turns over to me and he says, scary ride, wasn't it? <laughs> And it wasn't like the fear wasn't there or something. It was like, oh, Disneyland, okay, here's a scary ride. It's as if he was bowing to that and saying, it's like this. This is what a scary ride is like. And it wasn't good or bad or judging it in some way. It is just the way that it was. We all have scary rides. You know what I'm talking about, right? So he had a kind of presence and generosity of being. And then he would, you know talk about himself, his difficulties. Um, then he would kind of look around and, and, and talk about, you know, the people in front of him in the same way because he kind of wanted them to see that. He liked to kind of tease people and so forth. I remember when we went, I brought Ram Dass and Joseph Goldstein and a whole group of us went in the 1970s to Ajahn Chah's monastery. <coughs> and um, Ram Dass... Um, at that point, gee, he was probably in his late 40s or something like that. He'd just come from Bali where he'd been on the beach getting tanned and, you know, enjoying himself as one can in Bali um, and um, doing his yoga practice and stuff like that. And so we were all there. I guess I was probably about 30 years old then. I'd been teaching for a couple or a few years and Joseph and various other ones. And um, we're, we're sitting there and 
And he kind of looks around at the group and, you know, welcomes us all. And here's Ramdas kind of, you know, trying to, surfing in Bali and whatever and really getting himself together. And Ramdas looks over and he says, so who's the old man you brought with you? You know, because Ramdas had this little beard. Who's this old guy? You know, and Ramdas, of course, had been trying to be young at that point in his, in his career. And they just started this little dialogue, you know, and it was as if just Ramdas's presence brought out from Ajahn Chah this kind of, all right, well, let's see who's really in there behind that beard and so forth. And it was wonderful to see. Ajahn Chah would introduce, he introduced his monks. He, it was sort of like the seven dwarfs. He said, here's Sleepy. You know, he, my, this is my monk who sleeps all the time. It's great. I don't know how somebody can sleep as much as this guy, you know. And this one, he had two wives at the same time, you know. You think you have problems, right? Okay. And this is my monk who likes to meditate all the time. He likes to sit a lot. He's afraid to relate to people, right? <laughs> You know, and, um, you know, I like to play teacher. I sit up here and I kind of do this. And, and, and he just kind of played with um, whatever was going on for people. There was one Western monk who came when Sumedho and I were there to join us who was a doctor. And um, he was really intent on just being silent and meditating and not being part of the community when we would chant and and do our communal practices. He said, I don't want to do any of that. That's a waste of time. I just want to sit in my cottage and get enlightened. So Ajahn Chah didn't tell him he couldn't do it. Um, it's, he just waited, and we, we would go in, and we'd have our meal, or we'd have our evening thing where we had to come together for a few moments, and then we were supposed to practice together at community, um, and uh, everyone would be there, and then this this doctor would go back to his cottage. And after a few days, one day, um, Ajahn Chah says, and now the Western doctor will go meditate alone. <laughs> kind of just named it and bowed to him as he walked out. And the poor guy, he never went out alone after that. So he pointed to what was, this is just the way it is, you know. This is with a kind of humor and a lot of compassion. This is just the way circumstances are, the things that you're not supposed to say. He'd say, oh, that's interesting, isn't it, huh? How is that? How is it to be? whatever your particular condition is. And he was like a watchmaker. He would kind of look at people and peer at you and say, hmm, very interesting, yeah. Uh, how do you like being in whatever circumstance you're in? And in doing it, um, what he was pointing to was that we can see with great honesty our circumstance, with great compassion, and in the middle of it, laugh. In the middle of it, say, yes, this too is a part of our humanity. It's not that we have to change or fix or be someone else, but that there is a wisdom that's so much greater than the things that we get caught up in in our life. <coughs> he said, if you really want to practice watching other people, maybe 5%, watching yourself, being aware of yourself, 95%. I went and complained to him, actually. I said at one point, early on, you know, when you're with a, a teacher or a master, you try and figure out, well, okay, is this person really enlightened? And what does enlightenment mean, right? And then I'd see him scratching himself, and I'd say, or is he be, being mindful when he scratches himself? Or is he doing that unconsciously? Is he mindful all the time? I mean, I had all these weird, we get so idealistic, you know, about what it means to be awake. And then he would, he did some things that, you know, he, he was very 
um, flexible and fluid. Sometimes he'd treat people very graciously. Other times he'd be very difficult with them and, and quite inconsistent. He'd say inconsistent things. And I was having a really hard time. And I went and I said, you know, um, I'm not sure about this. I think maybe I should just go and meditate in a quiet place and not with all this community and things like that. And even you, I said, sometimes I can't tell. It doesn't, it's not clear to me, you know, I was really getting annoyed whether you're so enlightened or not. You know? And only a Westerner would say this. Nobody else would dare say it. And he thought that was the greatest thing that I'd asked that. And he said, it's a good thing that I don't look so enlightened to you. And I said, yeah, how come? You know, I was really kind of angry. And he said, because if I fit your model of enlightenment, you'd still think that the Buddha's out here somewhere, and you won't find him outside of yourself. You will not find him out here. The Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught, here's Ajahn Chah again, he says, where are we? Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught taught with such steps as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true path, the true Eightfold Path, is here. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. And the mind or the heart is that which walks the path. If you pay attention to this Eightfold Path, all the rest of the teachings of the Buddha, all the rest of enlightenment and awakening will be at your doorstep. So simple. Or sometimes he would just go up to people, you know, and they're having a hard time, and he'd say, are you suffering today? You know, and if you said, no, I'm having a good day, he said, oh, lovely, you know. Okay. Or if you said yes, he'd say, oh, must be attached, huh? You know, and kind of smile, a little smile he had, and then to the lawn, walk on. <laughs> and it wasn't a judgment. It was just kind of an observation. This is kind of how it works. Either you're holding on, in which case you're suffering, because you don't want the conditions or the circumstances to be the, the way they are, but they actually are that way. Or you've let go and you are free. Um, and I, I've told this story so many times. When we brought him to America, to um, our center in Massachusetts, and he came on a retreat like the one, the Metro retreat that's happening here. And he thought... You know, he said, people are very sincere in this country. People were sitting and walking in meditation. He said, in fact, they're probably better than most of the monks in my monastery, much more sincere. He said, but they seem troubled when they come into the monastery, you know, and they're trying so hard. He said, it's kind of like a hospital, isn't it? You know, they come in. So I took him out one day. Everyone was out doing their walking meditation outside, and he started walking up to people and looked at them very kindly and said, I hope you get well soon. You know, I hope you get well soon. It's kind of his. <sighs> so the practice was really to learn to be where we are to live in the reality of the present with joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. Anybody not have that? Please raise your hand and have your money back, right? (laughs) 
with the changing winds of life, the changing circumstances of our human life, to do so with a compassionate heart and a free and open mind. So simple, to become the witness of experience, to know that which comes and goes, and rest in the space of awareness itself. Because even as I speak to you, even as you sit and listen, you know, and maybe your body's a little achy from sitting for the last hour and a half, or there's tension that you carry from conflicts in the day and various things you were trying to get done and so forth. And, you know, certain pleasant experiences, the breeze comes in and it's a little bit cool, um, but maybe it's a little hot in the middle of the room and all the things that just make up our life. There's all of that and the hearing of the words. And then there's the one who is listening. Who is it that's actually feeling these sensations in the body and hearing these words? Because when you go and look in the mirror, here I am about to turn 60 in a few days, which is, you know, it's just a concept. 60 is a number, right? And I mean, the day before, the day after, really, it's not any different. Um, um, You can't feel a concept. You can just feel your experience. So I go and look in the mirror and I look older. Okay, that's true. But you know that strange experience that you look older, but you don't necessarily feel older, right? And then you start to realize that it's the body that's aging, but not you. Yeah, you get a little wiser if you're lucky, right? (laughs) But the fact is that the mind doesn't exist in time. The mind is outside of time, is timeless. Consciousness knows what experience is as it arises and passes. The body has a certain cycle, but who we really are is not this body. We contain this body. It's, a, it's something to um, regard and respect and care for. But if you think you're bo- you, you are your body, you're in trouble because it doesn't do what you want it to. So you're always in conflict with it. You can take care of it and jog it and, you know, massage it and feed it and, you know, do all the things you can do for it. But it's still, it's going to get old and do its thing, right? It's, so you use it. You rent it for a while, basically. And this isn't some philosophy. This is an inquiry. Who are we really? Who was born into this strange thing with the wiggly things at the end and little bits of fur and, you know, this human this human body with the hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly, <laughs> grind them up and move it around. And then you start to look and you say, okay, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not that who I am is locked into this little brain in here, but maybe the body actually exists in consciousness itself. And there's this invitation to shift to rest in Buddha nature and spaciousness and openness and freedom of heart that everybody knows. I'm not telling you something new, something that you don't know. You know that freedom is possible because you've experienced it in moments and gaps and spaces and places. There you were completely caught up in something and then you say, wow, really got caught up in that, didn't I? And in that moment, it's like this, the bubble pops, this epiphany, and here we are again just You know, humanity, it's such an interesting game to be in. It's such an amazing thing to be born into a body. But that isn't who we really are. And so in the temple, you come in, and Alan Watts said it at one point. He said, meditation is not really like 
anything else that we do in our life except for perhaps making music or dancing. Because the point in making music isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. Um, if that were so, he said, the best musicians would be simply the fastest ones, right? You get through this piece of music, and then you get through the next one, all right, got that one done and that one done. The idea in making music is to be where you are in harmony with the music or in dancing. You say, okay, let's dance over to the Woodacre Market and get a, you know, latte or something like that. It's not a goal-oriented activity. It's an activity of learning to be where we are with a free heart. And when you meet Ajahn Sumedho or when I met Ajahn Chah in this amazing forest monastery and, you know, tried to keep my robe up and do my bows and so forth, they were tremendously happy beings. And they were happy because they had discovered what you too can discover when you come in the temple. That there's this beautiful freedom that's not some idea or some ideal, but is our true nature, is who we really are. And it was great to watch it get tested at different times. People get, you know, get so idealistic about things. And Ajahn Chah said to me, when you come back, you know, if you, if you want, you could call it Christianity. You don't have to call it Buddhism. Maybe that will go down better in America, you know. <laughs> These days, probably true. But anyway, there was a nun, there was a nun who came early on to the temple in, in um, Thailand, to the Western temple that was established next to Ajahn Chah's monastery. And she was a natural contemplative and a very lovely being who spent four or five years there training. And she was charismatic, so a number of other Western women came and practiced with her. And she was a, a beautiful being and a strong practitioner. And then one day, she just left. She left a note and said, I, I, I'm finished my training here for now. I have to go. And she didn't talk to anybody. So that was a big shock to the community of nuns and so forth. And then um, about six or eight months later, she came back. And she um, came back as a born-again Christian and an evangelical. She'd, you know, she, had, she had to work out something with her, her Christian roots and she went back um, and got connected with the Gospels and so forth and had this whole great experience of um, Christ in some way, born again. And then, as people do, whether it's Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or whatever, she became a little bit fanatical about it, as people can. And so she came back and she came in and she said, you know, this was good, what you're doing, I did it too, was good, but there's something really better. And she was trying to get everybody to convert and coming in. And it was particularly difficult because she'd been this important figure and kind of mentor to people and stuff. You can imagine how it, you know, shook up the community. And after she was there for a while, the villagers, everybody's talking, the people in the monastery, and what should we do, and people in conflict and so forth. So they decided to walk the six or eight miles from the Western Monastery, over to see Ajahn Chah. And they came over to Ajahn Chah's monastery, you know, and they told this whole story. He knew that she'd left and gone away. He knew her quite well, you know, and he'd been hearing the stories, and now she's back. And they said, oh, yeah, but she's not just back. She's trying to convert us all, and we're going through all this, and, you know, and it's terrible, you know, we're good Buddhists, and, you know, and what should we do, and... What should we do? And he sat there quietly for a moment, and then he smiled, and he said, Well, maybe she's right. 
And they all laughed. And that was the end of his commentary on it, you know. He simply wasn't willing to get into conflict about opinions about things. And it was the people who were there in that moment said it was so liberating. Maybe she's right, because his teaching, he often used the word mayna, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? Well, tell us about enlightenment. Mayna. Well, how should we practice? Mayna. What's going to happen? Mayna, which means it's really uncertain, isn't it? And if you can become comfortable with uncertainty, then there comes an ease, a graciousness, a trust. You come to rest in the unborn, in the timeless, in the awakened mind that allows this world of joy and sorrow and birth and death to come and go as it will. You learn the art of letting be, of letting go, of meeting things with a bow and say, yes, this is the way things are, isn't it? So his words again, Ajahn Chah, he says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. And then your heart and mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the joy, the happiness of the Buddha. And so his invitation in the temple and the invitation... Here I look at Spirit Rock and think, now what is the relationship of this place in Northern California, you know, several decades later to this forest monastery with people wearing robes and walking barefoot with their begging bowls? What is the connection? And I feel it so strongly, actually, um, having especially the visit of the Ajahn Sumedho and these monks this last week, that there is a stream of wisdom and compassion and freedom that is our birthright, that is who we are, that's held by every great temple and every monastery. And it's a stream in the Buddhist tradition, but not just Buddhist. Um, Wherever human beings remember this true nature. Um, And it's just um, a beautiful thing to be able to be a part of it. And so I offer these words to you tonight um, for your reflection. and as a tribute to Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Chah, my teacher, um, I, I feel so blessed by what I have learned from my teachers and from really from the meditations and the Dharma uh, over these years. Um, And I hope it's a blessing for you. I hope so, very much. So let's sit for a moment. And let yourself rest in the spacious awareness that feels the breath and hears these words. 
and knows the sensations that rise and fall in the body that's bigger than them all, like the sky, open, easy, gracious. Sit like the Buddha. Rest in this awareness, relax into it, trust it. It is your home. <laughs> 